0: i got to get my water bottle ready. A little dry mouth today. It's good to see everyone here tonight. I'm so happy that you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're very, very thrilled uh, to have you with us, and we're happy to have those of you who may be joining us uh, online uh, as well. Really appreciate the wonderful job that Philip did this morning. Those of you that know me know I am a Star Wars fan, uh, and uh, he and I were talking about the sermons this morning, uh, the night that Craig and Brianna had a baby, uh, and had to call each other and say, hey, you know what, we're going to have to speak Sunday because Craig's going to be out of luck. And he told me he was going to do that lesson. I was very excited uh, about that, certainly excited about uh, Ella Alford's response this morning and putting on her Lord in baptism and what a wonderful result that is of any time uh, the Lord's word was preached. A little bit mad at Philip. He always vilifies my favorite Star Wars character, which is Darth Vader. I prefer just to think about him as an antagonist, uh, a lost and tragic soul in the Star Wars story, uh, and one I happen to kind of like, and so I really wish he wouldn't use the word villain, but I can't stop him from doing that. Tonight our lesson is going to be a little more broad than I typically present. Uh, those of you who have been in my classes know I really like to get deep into a certain passage and understand it, but tonight we're going to take a little bit different aspect of Uh, and a story and, and a lesson from the Bible where hopefully we can find an example a little more topical tonight, but certainly based on the text. You know, in our aspect of Bible study, there is an illustration that I sometimes use to get my mind in the right place, and that is one of a parade. You are either on the float in the parade or on the street watching the parade go by one float at a time, or you're in a helicopter or a blimp overseeing the entire parade where you can see everything from beginning to end and get a complete perspective on things. Uh, In my personal Bible study and much of my teaching, I try to get on the float. I try to get on the float as if I were Matthew or John or Peter or Paul or any one of the biblical participants or authors who were involved in it. They were immersed in it. They knew what it was like to be with Christ To live in that context and environment, that's a very difficult task to do to try to get on that. Most of us are usually watching the parade from the street uh, and seeing the stories go by one at a time and trying to get in our heads what's going on on those floats, what their purpose is, what do they represent, what are they trying to show us. And often we don't take the time to step back uh, and get the aspect from the helicopter or the blimp of the entire story, the entire parade. And that's what I want to look at today, not the entire story, don't panic, we're not going to be here that long, but I want to go back and, and look at part of the story and take you back to a study we did last spring, which is in the book of Joshua, and tonight I want to compare and contrast two different groups of people. Philip and I did not coordinate our lessons uh, for today, however, they are going to go very well uh, together because he dealt with the people that I'm first going to talk about, uh, people that were naggers and complainers, and had a very negative attitude, and then we're going to talk about the same ethnic people, but a different generation in the book of Joshua, and how they are represented in the biblical narrative, how they reacted to God uh, and God's appointed leadership, versus how the Hebrews that walked out of Egypt behaved towards God's commandments and God's leadership, a group that gave lip service. And the reason I want to do that is because we can learn a lesson from that. Romans 15, 4 is a verse that is often taken out of context and almost always only quoted in partiality. Uh, and even uses a word that really kind of is Southern English, uh, that the things that are in the Old Testament for our learning. You know, no G on the end of it, just an apostrophe uh, after the end. And I think it really does a disservice to Uh, its use in Romans, uh, but we can look at it in its entirety and say the things that were written in the former times were written for our encouragement and that through the things that were written for were for our encouragement uh, and that we can look at them and learn a lesson from them and that these writings can be a lesson to us just as they would have been a lesson to Paul's audience in Rome, a group of people he had never met. And so I want to look at the Exodus Numbers generation versus the Deuteronomy Joshua generation. And then, unfortunately, the judges through the Samuel King's narrative generation went back to being like the Exodus Numbers generation. So we want to look at these scriptures and say, okay, these things that were written before, that they are enduring and they are encouraging, as Paul told the Romans, and we can learn something from these writings. When we think about the presentation of the Israelites, or the Hebrews—really, is a better name because they hadn't become Israel yet—when they left Egypt, or even before they left Egypt, they had a really negative attitude. A really negative attitude. If you think back, even to when Moses and Aaron first approached Pharaoh about releasing his people, even before God enacted any of the plagues and punishments upon Egypt, the people got upset. And they got upset at Moses and Aaron because they came and started up trouble with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, you know what? I'm not going to give you any straw anymore for your bricks. You've got time to complain and and think about going to this promised land and irritating me about this. You can go get your own straw and make your own bricks. And the reaction to the Israelites or the Hebrews to Moses and Aaron are, what have you done to us? Look what you have heaped upon us. You have brought nothing but trouble on us. After that, God brings ten plagues, the last of which is terrible plague upon Egypt, showing his power over their supposed gods and opposed over their supposed superpower military that they had. And they are freed from Egypt, and they see these great wonders that God does, but yet when they are crowded beside the sea, pinned between the armies of Pharaoh and the water, They panic again. Why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have died there? They would rather be back in slavery, what they had become accustomed to for nearly four centuries, than to be free, because they still didn't believe that God would rescue them, even though he had wrought punishment upon Egypt. And then after that, the sea is parted. They walk across on dry land. The armies of Pharaoh are indulged with water and destroyed And not long after that, the grumbling begins again, the complaining again. After all that God had done for them and provided for them, escape from the military might of Egypt and the hand of slavery over them, then they say, well, what are we going to drink? Is God going to give us any water? We could have just died of thirst in Egypt. And then they say, what are we going to eat? We had plenty to eat as slaves in Egypt, and God provides water. God provides manna. And then they complain about the manna saying, Well, we've got plenty to eat, but you know, I'm tired of eating the same thing day after day. Now, I can kind of sympathize a little bit with that complaint. You know, I love cheeseburgers, but I don't know that I want cheeseburgers every day. I certainly know my waistline does not want cheeseburgers every day. But if I was to eat it every day, I might get a little sick of it too. And so the Lord sends quail for them to eat. And eventually the Lord sends enough quail where He says it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. You're so sick. Uh, of eating it and then really the climax of their complaint that irritates god to the point where he wants to destroy them without moses intercession for them he would have and started over scratching moses was when moses sent the spies into the promised land and two of them come back joshua and caleb say hey this is no big deal god said we can handle this and we're going to handle this but the other ten say we are like grasshoppers to them They have fortified cities, and and they did have fortified cities. Uh, And they were a military people, whereas the slaves coming out of Egypt had no military training whatsoever. They were scared, but they had a lack of faith in God. Now God's brought us out here for nothing. We can't go into this promised land. Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt where we had beds to sleep in and plenty of things to eat, constantly wanting to go back to a former way of life as slaves. Well, God has had enough. And he tells this generation of Israelites, after Moses buys them life, it says, you who are military age and above are going to die in this wilderness. But the next generation, those born in the wilderness and those younger at that time, you're going to see the promised land. You're going to enjoy the promise that I gave way back to Abraham and be able to enter into the promised land. And you see, when you think about what kind of people we're going to be, not just as a community, as a congregation Lord's Church, but as individuals, with all that God has done for us, especially those of us in the Western American church who enjoy a life absolutely free from difficulty in coming here to worship, a life free from the threat of death or imprisonment for just speaking the gospel. This is not a luxury many of our brethren around the world Enjoy. We meet tonight with the roof over our heads in a palatial place compared to the environment uh, of the catacombs or of the homes uh, of early Christians. We have heat and we have air conditioning. You have a pretty comfortable pew to sit in there that you're sitting on. You all have clothes. You all look fairly well fed today. We enjoy a great many luxuries, but yet we still find things to complain about to God. God, you have given me the privilege of living in the wealthiest nation that has ever existed on the face of the planet. You give me the privilege of having a congregation with godly and stable leadership. Many of you know what it's like to be in a congregation without godly and stable leadership. You've put me in a place where I'm never without someone to visit me or I'm not without someone to talk to if I want to. And I'm not without a way to get involved in Lord's work unless I don't want to. But yet, somebody still finds room to complain. Somebody's not going to like the color of the new carpet. I kind of like the half and half look we got going on right here. A little bit of the old stuff, a little bit of the new, a little bit of yin, a little bit of yang. I kind of like it. But say goodbye to it because it's going to be gone. There's going to be handrails on this stage in the next week. Somebody's going to complain about that. Somebody's not going to like the color of the walls. Somebody's not going to like the temperature of the air. There's all manner of things that complain about it. I'm just going to go and tell you, if that's the kind of person you are, I don't want to hear it. Don't come to me. I don't have complaint department hanging on my door, and I really don't care. Now, if you've got concerns about serving God and, and, and want to know something about the Bible and how you can better please God, I'd love to help you, and I'd love for you to help me in those same things. But we grumble and complain despite all that God has given us. you have sitting in your laps? I told my faith builders class this morning, a luxury that for the first 15 centuries of Christianity did not exist. You have the Lord's complete revealed word, the whole parade sitting in your lap in your language. You know, they used to cut people up and throw them in the river for translating the Bible into English. You live in the lap of Christian luxury in this country that we live in, and yet we still find room to complain. Even though we can read all about what God has done for us, and beyond the salvation of walking through a sea or deliverance from human bondage, we have the message of Jesus Christ who died, beaten like a filthy animal and put up on a cross for you. And yet we still find room to complain. Perhaps he did, but it's sure not recorded in the Gospels that Jesus complained. Really at any time. Jesus got upset. Jesus lectured people. Jesus loved people. Jesus wasn't a complainer and a grumbler. Even though he had come to live in this filthy world, a divine being that has existed since before creation, put on a a body that felt cold and and suffered illness and was tempted, the Hebrew writer would say in every way that we are, but he didn't grumble and complain. And so why do we? We can't be Christ-like and grumble and complain. But what about the contrast we get in the Deuteronomy Joshua narrative where we see a new generation of people who can look back on the mistakes of those who came before them, who were, were raised in a wilderness where God provided them food, not fancy food, not a banquet every day, but food and water and very, very durable clothing. Their clothing lasted even longer than Levi's used to. They never wore out. Their sandals didn't wore out, and they lived in a harsh and terrible environment. I, I know we think about wilderness, and we picture like Sherwood Forest, That is not the wilderness we are talking about. We are talking about an arid desert terrain that they existed in with every reason to complain because I've been raised in the desert and I've had to eat the same thing my whole life. But this is not a group of people who complain. When we see them come to Joshua, even those who are scheduled to live on the east side of the Jordan, say, you know what, Joshua, we promised Moses that we would go in and fight with our brothers and we'll do so. We're committed to doing that. We're not going to rebel against your leadership. We're going to follow your leadership because we see that God appointed you as leader over us. The spies that Joshua sends in to Canaan, into a walled, fortified city, perhaps the oldest city in the ancient Near East with formidable walls around it, those spies come back and say they're going to melt before us a much different report and a much different attitude than the spies sent before. Now, maybe Joshua was smart not to send 12. He just sent two because he said that's a magic number. <laughs> we're not going to do it too many people because then too many people come back. But then we see a generation who attacks Jericho in a very unmilitary way. What do you mean we're going to march around the city every day and then seven times in the last day, and all we're going to do is blow some trumpets and scream and holler? and these walls are going to fall down. That's the most ridiculous proposition I've ever heard, but they don't say that. They believe in God. They have faith in God, and they say, we're going to do like God says, and they carry it out, and they see the result. When that new generation, it's time to be circumcised and enter into the covenant. They don't complain about that, a terrible and painful process that they have to go through. The previous generation would have whined and moaned about that, but these Israelites, they do it. Even when we see negatives in the Joshua narrative, it's one man's sin who causes the difficulty at I when we have Achan's sin. And it's really a factor of one man's leadership to inquire of God before going up against I. But the community says, we're not going to let that sin among exist among us, and they stone him to death, and they get it out of there. It's the men of Israel who listen to the Gibeonite story and say, wait a minute, that sounds a little bit fishy. It's the leadership's fault, not the men of Israel's fault, that they believe and enter into this binding treaty with the Gibeonites that haunts them. And all through the conquest, the people step in behind Joshua, they follow his leadership, and there's no grumbling and no complaining towards God. The only grumbling and complaining they do is, Joshua, why did you let those Gibeonites trick you? But we see a generation who has, can look back and say, you know what, our fathers grumbled, our fathers complained, they had no faith in God, to enter the promised land, and look what happened to them. Let me learn a lesson from that. And although I have plenty of reason to grumble and complain, I'm not going to. Even though God asked me to do strange and unusual things, I'm not going to. Even though God asked me to put myself through a painful medical procedure, I'm not going to complain. Even though I'm going to march into the same territory that my forefathers said It's full of fortified cities, and we look like grasshoppers to them. You know, those people hadn't changed. You know, it's interesting the people in that country said, we're afraid of your God because we remember 40 years ago when he brought y'all across the sea and destroyed the armies of the Egyptians. Rahab had more faith than the generation that walked out of Egypt. And so when we look back at that and think about those examples, that is a yin and a yang, a black and a white, a good and an evil way to look at it we need to think about that example and instead of being grumblers and complainers and thinking about the things god hasn't done for us to think about the things that god has done for us and the comfortable privilege we have of worshiping god in freedom and in the, in luxury here in our time because what what happens when the time comes when we don't have that privilege anymore will we last as a people and as a congregation But we look back on the simple things like food and water and clothing and think God provides those things for us, and that's really all we need even though we may be wandering in a wilderness of difficulty, uh, maybe in a figurative sense in the future. So we need to decide what kind of people that we're going to be, and we as individuals decide that. If we have one or two people who grumble and complain, it's infectious. It spreads throughout people, and it brings negativity to the rest of the group. I mean, none of you guys like a grumbler and a complainer at work, do you? If you're a supervisor, I know you don't like the grumbler and complainer. What you do is put them on the highway and get them out of there. You don't want to listen to that all the time. In a church, we have to learn to live with people who have very different attitudes, very different backgrounds, very different circumstances, and very different attitudes, very different levels of maturity, and we have to get along. I cannot imagine a more difficult place for people to get along than church. I really can't. At least people at a workplace are generally all pulling in the same direction uh, and at least trying to make some money. Nobody here is getting paid to be a member of the church. You know, you get paid ultimately one day to do that. But we're going to have difficulties with each other. We're going to have misunderstandings with each other. There are going to be things that the elders do that you don't like. And guess what? The elders do things that I don't like. Okay? Every once in a while, they do things that I don't like or I don't agree with. But you know what? I can love it or leave it. You know, we, we need to go along with the leadership that God's appointed over us. There, there's an attitude in the American church that because I give money, I get to say-so in it. I want you to point that out to me in the Scriptures. I want you to show me something in the Scriptures where singing is self-serving. Where we're going, to, I don't like songs we sing night. Who cares if you don't like them? If they give praise to God and they teach and admonish your neighbor, that's what we're here for. There's nowhere they're self-serving. People are like, well, what singing does for me? Where is that in the scriptures that we're looking at? And so I encourage you, and I encourage myself, because I am a pessimistic and pragmatic person, uh, and I naturally default to that, and I have to really make an effort not to do that. My wife would tell you that in a hot minute. Now, I kind of think about myself as practical, but really it's just a disguise for being pessimistic. But I need to learn not to complain. I don't have anything to complain about in life. I am healthy, I walk upright, I put two feet on the floor every morning, I can go to the restroom by myself, I've got an air-conditioned, heated home to live in, I sleep in a wonderful bed, I've got a, a beautiful wife and a beautiful daughter, i got beautiful friends, i got a church family that most of you love me and care about me for the most part. What have I got to complain about in life? Nothing. There's a lot of people I know here in this congregation who've dealt with a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain, a lot of loss, a lot of suffering, a lot of death a lot of prolonged medical issues. And boy, you can tell the faithful because they don't complain about it. They, they, they wonder, it's so interesting, they wonder, man, I hate that this ailment has gotten me where I can't serve in the church like I used to. They're more worried about that than there are their own personal concerns. Those are the pure and undefiled religion people. So I ask you, just like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord at the end. I'm going to ask you people before I die, Are you going to commit to this relationship with God, or are you going to move forward? And they do, but not long after Joshua dies, they they get back off the wagon because they don't have good leadership. But Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, so you choose this day who you're going to serve. And the servants of God are not grumblers and complainers. And we need to be careful of how we do that because we affect others. You come to the assembly, Hebrews 10 tells us, so that we can stir each other up to love and good work, not provoke each other to complaints and grumbling. That doesn't exist. And so when we look at these two examples, the people who had every reason to be thrilled that God had freedom from slavery, and a group of people who had every reason to complain because they'd grown up in a harsh desert wilderness, but these people didn't complain. These people looked back on what God had done in the past and the lessons that they learned from a generation that complained and didn't have faith in God and said, you know what? We're going to go along with God, and I think it's going to pay big dividends. If you're not in Christ, you're a slave to sin. Paul uses that metaphor. It's a harsh metaphor. Even in the ancient world, it's a very, very difficult and terrible life. You're viewed as property. You're a slave to sin, and you, you can't get away from it without Christ's blood. And if you really want to get, a lot, get away from a life of negativity and grumbling and being one of, of a positive attitude and a, a, a hope in the end that nobody else in this world has if they don't have Christ, I encourage you to make the decision that little Ella made this morning and so say, you know what, I, I want to shuck off those bondage, that bondage, those chains that are on me. And I want to be like the new people of Christ. I want to be delivered. The Exodus narrative is perfectly in line with the narrative of Christ death and resurrection and deliverance from sin and slavery that it involves. I encourage you tonight to be a positive person, to look forward, to think about the things that God has done for other people, the things that God could do for you, and be saved. Put on Christ in baptism tonight. Don't hesitate. The world could end tonight. The world could end tomorrow. We don't know. Your life could end tonight or tomorrow. Think about how many people didn't expect to die in floods and and other natural catastrophes that came upon them suddenly. Perhaps you live your life in one of grumbling and complaint. I encourage you to put that behind you. I encourage you to ask the Lord for help for that. If you have hurt someone else by those statements, I encourage you to ask them for forgiveness, either publicly or privately. It's irrelevant which one of those there are. But I encourage you to be positive to think about the Deliverer, to praise God who has done mighty works that you can read about in that parade laying in your lap and think about how you can get in being part of that parade and and being part of God's family. If there's anything that we can do to help you tonight, please come as we stand.